Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Bob Keefe will join us to discuss climate nomics. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, changes to the global environment continue to confound policymakers as well as scientists. But has the changes to the global environment become an economic issue? Joining us today to discuss this is Mr. Bob Keefe. Mr. Keefe is the executive director of E2, Environmental Entrepreneurs, which is a national nonpartisan group of business owners, investors, and professionals who are leveraging economic research to advance policies that are good for the environment and good for the economy. Previously, Mr. Keefe has spent 25 years as a journalist reporting for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Cox newspaper chains. He has penned the new book entitled Climate Nomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Mr. Keefe, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, Charles, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it is certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've put together here, Climate Nomics, in which you talk about how climate change is becoming a major economic issue. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together. Well, absolutely. Thank you for that. So as you mentioned, I, I spend a lot of my life, Charles, as a journalist. I covered technology and politics and the environment and just about everything else over the course of more than two decades. And what I started to realize, Charles, is that there was a story that wasn't being told when it comes to climate change. And it's the story of the economics of climate change. And the point of the book and what I've discovered and and many other people are discovering every day, unfortunately, due to the climate crisis, is that climate change is no longer just an environmental issue. It's no longer just a social issue. It's no longer just a health issue. It's an economic issue. Last year, we had $150 billion worth of damage from climate-related disasters, wildfires in the West, so many hurricanes in the East, we ran out of names for them, flooding and drought in our nation's heartland that is causing the price of everything from cornflakes to chicken to go up. That was up almost 50% from the year before, Charles. But the good news is the other side of the climate-nomics coin, if you will, is that what we know now is that we have the technology to address these costs. We have the science to address these costs. And by doing so, we can create a lot of jobs, drive economic growth, and spur a new age of innovation in America. Indeed, indeed. I mean, the toll that it's taking economically may be the greatest impetus that's out there for forcing the hand of people to actually do something about it. Well, when something becomes a pocketbook issue, people start to stand up and pay attention. And Right now, climate change is no longer just something that's happening in the Arctic. It's no longer something that's happening in some faraway island in the Pacific. It's happening in record hurricanes that have battered places like my home state of North Carolina. It's record fires that have occurred in the West, where I live now in California. 
you know, over the past five years, Charles, we've had three of the most expensive wildfires in our nation's history. We've had four of the most costly hurricanes in our nation's history. Look what happened in Texas a couple of years ago where we had the most expensive freeze in Texas of all places, right? Nearly $200 billion in property damage. And last year in the great state of Iowa, two years ago in, in Iowa, we had the most expensive thunderstorm-related event, a derecho, a bomb cyclone in Iowa that cost that state $7.5 billion in damage. So this is happening in our backyards now. It's a pocketbook issue for every American because every American taxpayer is the one who's paying to clean this stuff up. There's always been these costs, but now we're just realizing that costs overtaking the benefits. Well, that, that's exactly right, Charles. And we've been talking about the direct costs of climate disasters. But of course, there's the indirect cost, too, that I get into in the book, in my book, Climatonomics. Homeowners insurance rates, for instance, are up more than 30% over the past decade or so, in part because insurance companies are getting really hammered with lost payouts for wildfires and hurricanes and flooding. Look at the military, something as ubiquitous as the United States military. In 2018, Charles, we had back-to-back -back hurricanes and flooding that hammered Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Five months later, we had, or a month later, we had Tyndall Air Force Base in northern Florida that got hammered by another hurricane. Five months after that, Ophut Air Force Base in Nebraska got hit by that derecho that I mentioned. It wiped out something like 70% of all housing units at Camp Lejeune, even more than that in Tyndall Air Force Base. And Offutt, which is the home of the doomsday plane, as you probably know, is the flying White House in case of nuclear disaster. Those planes were, the flooding was so bad there that those planes probably couldn't have taken off. And all it cost almost $9 billion worth of damage to those three military bases alone that taxpayers have to pay for. Look at agriculture. Between 1991 and 2017, climate change added something like $27 billion to the cost of crop insurance, according to Stanford University. You, me, and farmers have to pay that those costs. As you point out, there are, in fact, quite substantial benefits to actually reversing climate change that can reap rewards beyond just the mitigation of the costs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that my organization has done over the years, Charles, is we've tracked clean energy job growth around the country. That's jobs in solar and wind, but also in energy efficiency in clean vehicles, producing electric vehicles and any kind of other vehicle with a plug in it. Jobs in battery and storage, for instance, and, and clean and better fuels. And what we found is that there are about 3 million people that now work in clean energy jobs in every single state in the country. That's red states, that's blue states, that's purple states, and frankly, every state in America. Those are jobs that have been created because of smart policy decisions in the past at the federal level and at the state level. The good news is we can create a lot more of those jobs. We can drive some really cool innovation that I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that, that I wrote about in the book that can keep America competitive with the rest of the world as well. The U.S. has oftentimes been criticized lagging behind a lot of these developments, but there are a lot of great innovations out there that are starting to come to the fore. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And the obvious one that we're all seeing right now and we're going to see a lot more of is electric vehicles. 
every single auto manufacturer in America right now is shifting to electric vehicles. If you watch the Super Bowl this year, I think there were something like 13 car ads during the Super Bowl, Charles, and all but one of them was for an electric vehicle. That's happening around the, the world as well. There's not a single automaker in the world who's not shifting to electric vehicles. Why? For one thing, who wants to continue paying $6 a gallon for gasoline or whatever the cost is today for a vehicle that doesn't perform as well and costs more to operate than an electric vehicle? So we're seeing that innovation come to fore right now. Look at solar and wind and batteries. Solar and wind right now, Charles, is the cheapest power available in just about any part of the country. Why is that? Because of the innovation that we drove in this country over the past 20 years that have brought down the price of PV and wind energy technology to the point where, again, it's the cheapest energy available right now. Look at something as simple as energy efficiency. I mean, 20 years ago, LED lights were not something that you put in your light socket at home. It was something that lit up on your computer or something like that. Now, LED lighting is ubiquitous. Energy Star appliances are saving billions of dollars every year for consumers across the country. Even windows, doors, programmable thermostats, all of that has been technology that's really come to the fore in the past decade or, or two that really shows where we can continue to go with clean energy in this country. If you don't adopt these changes, you're behind competitively. That's right. And that's why you see almost every single company, major company in America now shifting to 100% renewable energy, for instance. You see companies ranging from Amazon to UPS shifting to electric vehicles. They're doing it in part because they realize we've got a real problem on this planet, but they're also doing it mainly because it impacts the bottom line. It's the cheaper way to go. What about the entrenched interest from older energy companies, older interests that they're not going to go gently into that good night? Well, they're definitely not going to go gently into the night. We know that from history. But as I write in the book, the opening chapter of the book, Charles, a year ago on May 26, 2021, we had really a tectonic change in the oil and gas industry. On that day, we had Exxon Mobil's annual meeting. We also had Chevron's annual meeting. And meanwhile, in The Hague, we had a court case involving Royal Dutch Shell, three of the biggest oil and gas companies in the world. And what happened was because of shareholder actions that finally came to a head, shareholders were demanding that these companies for the first time start to account for the cost of climate change and start to move away from their core business models to do something about reducing their carbon emissions because it was hurting their shares, because it was hurting their stock prices. And what we saw that day was that we had three new directors on the board of ExxonMobil. We saw Chevron being held to come out with some serious and real carbon emission plans for its shareholders. And in The Hague, we had the court ruling in favor of environmentalists and others that had filed suit that ordered the company to reduce its emissions by 45% because it was impacting the economy of the Netherlands. So people are starting to realize that we need to change and people are starting to take action to do it and, and to do it through the lens of economic issues. Should we rely on market forces in shaving this or what role does government have to play in terms of incentivizing some of these changes as well? Government has to play a role and the federal government in particular has to play a role. 
if you look at every major economic transition this country has ever had, Charles, whether it's the electrification of rural America, whether it's the Railroad Act that opened up the West, thanks to transportation, the highway system that was developed by Eisenhower. Every major economic transition has happened in part because the federal government has led it. We can continue to do things on a piecemeal basis through the courts, through businesses, through state governments, but we're not going to achieve the carbon reductions that we need, and we're not going to reap the economic benefits and the opportunities across the country that are available right now without the federal government acting. The good news is we have a policy that's sitting in Congress right now, it's been sitting there since last fall, that would invest something like $550 billion into climate and clean energy expansions. And what's that going to do? It's going to help bring down the cost of solar and wind even more for every consumer. It's going to include tax credits that make electric vehicles, which we know are expensive right now, cheaper for every American driver. And it's going to expand energy efficiency programs that can save consumers money with every monthly power bill. And who doesn't want to save a few dollars these days on a power bill? How do you think the U.S. is faring right now compared to other countries in terms of their policy and their development of cleaner sources of energy and their standing in the world? Well, unfortunately, we've fallen behind. Uh, We had four years where we had leadership in Washington that thought climate change was a hoax and that we ought to shift back to a coal-based energy system. And that really put up a major hurdle for the United States. Recently, the United Nations just came out with a study that kind of ranked where the United States is on climate action compared to the rest of the world. Not too long ago, we were ranked about number 15, which isn't great when you're a leadership country, but it showed that we were moving in the right direction. Today, we're closer to 100 when you compare climate action to the rest of the world. So we've got a long way to go. Do you think the tide is shifting with the change in the administration? Do you see both the administration and the businesses that are now in the U.S. helping to move that back in the right direction? Well, we're definitely starting to see a changing of the tide. Certainly, the Biden administration in Washington has done a lot already to advance clean energy and advanced climate solutions. Just yesterday, the Biden administration came out with a major decision regarding solar and the Defense Production Act that's going to, to spur a lot of growth in clean energy, certainly through things like government procurement. When you have the nation's or the world's biggest buyer of things, aka the United States government, including the military and every agency in the government, now saying it wants to procure 100% clean energy and wants to shift to electric vehicles. That's a huge market maker, if you will, that's going to filter down throughout our entire economy. But all that said, we still need lasting federal legislation and lasting federal investments in climate and clean energy if we're going to get out of this mess. Opportunities then for individuals then to influence that policy, contacting their policymakers, help influence these types of changes. Absolutely. We need to all tell our lawmakers that we want a cleaner economy. We want to do something about climate change and the growing economic cost to every single one of us because of it. And we need to uh, hold those uh, elected officials accountable for doing the right thing here. Having covered this, having looked at the economics of it, the history of it, what's your impression of our situation? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, where we're heading in influencing climate change? Well, I am optimistic, Charles, and I'll tell you why. You know, a lot of people keep uh, have told me that, oh, yeah, Bob, this 
clean energy stuff is great. And sure, we all want electric vehicles, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. That's way off in the future. Well, the fact is, at least when it comes to the technology, we're already there. We need to ramp up the deployment. But I think back to my time as a technology reporter in Silicon Valley, for instance, Charles, and I can distinctly remember sitting in a room with other reporters and Steve Jobs and Jobs telling us that one of these days you're going to have a thousand songs in your pocket. And who knows, you, you, you someday will be also taking pictures with your cell phone. And we all wrote that down and thought, yeah, sure, whatever. I remember sitting with Jeff Bezos at Amazon and back when Amazon only sold books and was having a hard time doing that. And Bezos telling us, someday you'll be able to buy anything and everything you can get at any store on my website. I remember the Google guys saying, someday you'll be able to search for anything and everything ever produced digitally, and it'll pop up right on your home computer. Think how much that technology has changed our lives already, Charles, and think how much really, how quickly, relatively quickly, those changes have taken place. Right now, we're at the same point with clean energy. Right now, we're at the same point with batteries and electric vehicles. So I'm very optimistic that we can tackle the climate change issue through business, through technology, and through looking at it from an economic lens. Indeed, indeed. It sounds like a really a ripe opportunity for, for change and for, for growth. We are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious maybe to close, if you have any final words regarding your book, Climate Nomics, what do you like people to take home from reading it? I'd like for folks to take home that climate change is an economic issue and we have to do something about it. We have to do something about the increasing costs from climate disasters. And we have to do something as, as the greatest country in the world to do more to see the economic benefits that come with addressing climate change and expanding clean energy. And you can definitely find out more at climatenomicsbook.com. You can also learn about my organization, E2, at e2.org. That's e-numeral2.org. We were just talking to Mr. Bob Keefe, the new book, Climatonomics, Washington, Wall Street, and the Economic Battle to Save Our Planet. Mr. Keefe, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.